you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. What is riskology? What happens if you sneak through a police barricade in Russia? How can you find a marathon to run in Antarctica? And how does traveling help you solve problems? Don't miss the answers in today's podcast. Hey there, Innovation Nation. We got snow in the mountains here over the weekend. Now, I'm sure that some of you have had all the snow you care to see for the year. But here in Southern California, I'm pretty stoked that winter hasn't left quite yet. As I started a fire in the fireplace this morning, I smiled because we've got at least another week of chilly weather. And I'm relishing the opportunity to have a few more days of the dancing poetry in the fireplace every morning. I love to start my morning slowly by building a fire and watching the flames transform the wood into a warm glow and shimmering heat as the coals appear to dance with the flames. That's a little more poetic than I meant to be today. But if you've been enjoying the conversations and insights here in the podcast, share this podcast with a friend. Great ideas need to be shared to have an impact. You can also help others find the podcast by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes, leaving a rating, and writing a review. All those links can be found at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast. That's www.ttinvent.com forward slash podcast. In the last few days, I got my brain bent at a great conference with some business leaders. At this conference, I met several people with great interest in the Inventors Bootcamp we're bringing to Orange County and Thousand Oaks, California this summer. The Inventors Bootcamp is a one-week experience for teens and teachers to learn inventing skills with 3D printing, 3D design, programming, electronics, and practical engineering. For more information, go to the ttinvent.com website and click on the Inventors Bootcamp button. Our guest today on the podcast is a self-declared riskologist. We'll let Tyler describe what he means by riskology. By combining travel hacking, introspection, studying introversion and extroversion, he's been able to help people understand why traveling expands your ability to solve problems. Without further ado, Tyler Tervuren. So my guest today is Tyler Tervuren and he explores social psychology and shares research and insights about winning at life, work, and adventure by taking smarter risks. So, Tyler, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, so you pretty much nailed it. For the last about four and a half years now, I've been writing a blog called Riskology, uh, where I dive into the world of psychology and all of the new advances being made in the fields of you know psychological research and try to find... Uh, interesting and useful, uh, useful research and information that can help normal people live better lives uh, every day. You know, at work, at home, 
and at play. So how did you get into this? I don't know, is it a vocation? Is it a curiosity? How did you get into this? I think it's a vocation and a, and a hobby, I guess. started definitely much earlier as a curiosity. I've always been interested since I was a little kid in kind of understanding you know, how people tick, trying to understand the reasons people do the things they do. You know, if I was, you know, on the playground trying to understand why boys chase girls and girls hit boys and um, all that kind of stuff. But I didn't really, uh, I didn't really do much in that in that field. In fact, I was, I ended up going to school for architecture and worked in construction for several years before I really made any sort of headway in my, you know, my normal curiosity and moving towards riskology. Uh, when I got laid off in 2010. So had I not been, had I not lost my job back in 2010, uh, I can't say if I would have ever actually, you know, tried to pursue pursue this as like a full time kind of thing. So did you actually get a degree in, in architecture? I did, yeah. And so after you did that, and you said you worked in uh, construction, and what different capacities did you, you know, work in construction there as an architect? I was a project manager primarily. Okay. So I got my degree in architecture. I had a uh, like a sub-focus of my degree was in project management and getting out of school. I was a little bit disillusioned with the world of architecture at the time. And then I saw that, you know, working in construction, you can make quite a lot more money out of the, uh, out of the gate um, as an architect working, working for a construction company than you can working, you know, for an architect. And so I chose that route, kind of knowing all along, but not really admitting to myself that, what I really ought to, what I what I really should have been doing is was following my natural curiosity, which at that point I had kind of it, it wasn't that. So I just I was just trying to pivot into something I could use to make a living, uh, rather than trying to really explore what I what I really wanted to do. So how did you end up in architecture to begin with? Well, I do have a natural curiosity for architecture. Um, I love I love it since uh, and I have since I was a little kid. Uh, my mom tells stories about how I used to uh, there used to be a a section in the weekly paper, the Oregonian here in Oregon, uh, a home section, and they would have uh, a featured floor plan every week. And I would clip them out uh, every single week and keep them in a folder, and I would cut them up and build Frankenstein houses from the plans. I definitely have a curiosity for design, which has followed me through all the different you know paths I've taken, and even today with riskology and the stuff I do here. So that's always been with me since I was a little kid. But learning the you know there's all there's always the uh, there can be at least a, a disconnect between your curiosity and your passion and what reality looks like in terms of making uh, making a living and and the day in and day out of actually doing the thing that you uh, that you thought would uh, you thought would be your vocation you know for instance most architects until they actually are out in the working world have no idea what it actually means to be an architect and so you don't really learn about the harsh reality of the, you know, the day in and day out of, of what it's actually like to work in that field until you've kind of gone through years and years of schooling and really honed your, your eye and your understanding of the design process. And then, you, uh, and then you go out and you get a job and you're like designing a shell station or a target. Or <laughs> so so, so, so I, I take it when you, when you got out from your degree that you had a couple of harsh reality checks, sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I did. You know, and I actually I never did work for uh, an architect. I just didn't right out of the gate. I didn't because I just uh, doing little short internships and you know informational interviews and stuff and all the all the normal things you do 
when you're in school trying to, you know, find your place. It led me to see, like, I'm, basically I met, like, a lot of really brilliant people who were not very happy. And oh, uh, that's not good. <laughs> no. Yeah. Was, and so I kind of I kind of decided, and, you know, maybe if I if I had the knowledge today, you know, if I had, sorry, if I had the knowledge back then that I have today of knowing, you know, there's, you don't have to follow the prescribed path and do everything exactly the way it's laid out for you. You know, there's many ways to become anything you want to and not do it the way that everybody else does. Maybe I would still be an architect, but um, I did not see that at the time. So I decided to uh, I decided to split and try something else. So you said something a minute ago that, that grabbed into something in my brain. So you, you yeah. have a natural inclination for, for building things and designing things. Oh, absolutely. Are, are you connected to a makerspace where you live? Um, in a way, yes. No, I mean, I have friends who are connected to makerspaces, I guess. But myself, no, I'm not super plugged into into any like local maker communities. I have a friend who runs a uh, who actually runs an organization called uh, Makers Nation, which is a brilliant little idea. Uh, it's just a place. It's an it's a nonprofit designed to basically give a space and a, and a voice to a, a subset of designers and builders and people who make stuff here in Portland. And he's doing absolutely amazing things, and I've never gone to one of his <laughs> single one. <of> <laughs> so, so what kind of outlets do you have now for your natural curiosity for making and building things? you just go down to your garage? Do you uh, uh, go hang out well, with friends and, and help them solve their problems? What what? I think it comes out in my, in my work every day. Like, I don't feel a... Um, like there's there's no disconnect for me anyways between what I was studying before and what I'm doing now. Like at the end of the day, right? Like there's uh, architecture is all part of design and communicating an idea and making people feel a certain way when they enter your space. Well, it's the same thing when you write when you know, like when you write a blog post. It's the same thing when you design a website. It's the same thing, you know, when you do all of those kinds of things. When you boil it all down, it's just a it's just an attempt to convey an idea to people and, you know, make people feel a certain way and sort of understanding. And so I feel like I do that on a daily basis and in a way that kind of matches my own strengths much better than they did maybe as as an architecture student. Now, you're a self-described introvert and and you have a blog and uh, I've seen a couple of, you know, or at least, you know, one or two talks that you've given. So how do you reconcile this being a communicator and introvert? Uh, that's a good question. And I think that the answer is honestly like there's a there's a serious misconception about – so I guess maybe, Steve, I'll, I'll ask you a question first. Do you consider yourself an introvert or more of an extrovert? Oh, I, I, I read your posts. I'm an introvert. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I do the same thing you do. So, so I'm learning about myself by reading yes. your blog. Yep, yep. So um, – what what you asked there was kind of a baited question, maybe a uh, because yeah, because what there's a there's a kind of a, a not a stigma, but I feel like most people feel like they understand what introversion is, uh, especially if they're not an introvert. Like it's easy to try to to kind of classify people as either extrovert equals uh, outgoing, talkative, leader, um, someone who's always communicating, an introvert is someone who is uh, very reserved keeps keeps to themselves keeps quiet doesn't uh you know isn't very social and in reality it's that's not actually the case like the real designation between an introvert and an extrovert is where you get your energy from so 
what like numerous, numerous studies have shown us now is that extroverts are people who generally go throughout their day uh, slightly understimulated. So if there's an optimal level of stimulation for every single person, you know, the amount of aliveness you, you feel, like how awake and alert you are, extroverts go through each day feeling just slightly understimulated. And so they seek out people, conversations, relationships, uh, groups, and situations to stimulate them to get to that level of optimal stimulation. That's what gives them energy and allows them to, you know, do the thing they do, the things that they do and be happy and productive. Introverts, on the other hand, go through life and go through every day just slightly overstimulated, which means that, you know, uh, on the day-to-day basis, there's just a little bit too much going on. And so what we do is we seek out, we actually seek out in order to energize ourselves and get the uh, the energy and the focus that we need to, you know, to really perform at our best, we need quiet alone time. But that doesn't mean that we don't enjoy um, and find value in, you know, connecting and making relationships and, and building strong connections just in the same way that extroverts uh, don't necessarily not enjoy, you know, a quiet night to themselves, you know, and alone time. It's simply a matter of where you get your energy from. So an extrovert can spend maybe, you know, a good portion of all day, every day out connecting uh, and talking to people and being, you know, being a part of the, of the scene, you know, if you want to call it that. An introvert enjoys that just as much, but can't do it on the same sustained basis, right? We, we have to look at our social situation and kind of make judgments about which, where's the best place to focus our energy because when we go out and do that, it's actually going to drain us a little bit. We're going to need to go and be alone to recharge again, just in the same way that an extrovert has to pick which days they're going to you know, stay in and not talk to anybody because you know, once that day is up, they really need to get back out and start talking to people. So how is this idea relate? Well, I guess I should turn around. So how did you end up starting this uh, riskology idea, being an introvert? Because that sounds like something that might be a, a need to go seek stimulation. So reconcile those two things for us. I guess I never really saw it that way. I saw it more as the idea behind the the site and the project was is it gave you know my ideas, my research, everything that I wanted to communicate. It gave you know it gave me a voice in a way that really matched up with my natural tendency. So I'm not the type of person that is that or that that often goes out and is giving talks and going to meetings and things. But when I but I can communicate all that same stuff through a blog. Right and through an email newsletter and through podcast interviews like that, uh, like this and other things like that, they're actually really perfect for me because they allow me to get my ideas and um, and what I want to say out to the world in a way that uh, that's really sustainable for me. And the lifestyle that comes along with that, you know, uh, I talk a lot about you know adventure and living living an adventurous life and doing uh, some crazy stuff. That all speaks to me very well because, as uh, also because you know, these are an, an adventure is something that you can enjoy with people or by yourself. There's many, many ways to uh, to have an adventure, and so I I tend to choose adventures on my own. But once in a while, I also go out and you know do stuff with interesting things with friends and and people I know. So, what is the I guess the core message in the Riskology website? Yeah. So the core message is that. Every single day, like your your mind is working to solve problems, 
and you're taking risks every single day. Like no matter like whether you're thinking about it or you're not, like your subconscious and your conscious is always at work, uh, working away at something. So as long as that's the case, you might as well be as good at it as possible. And so the message is that like you can learn to master your psychology to live a better life and and live more adventurously. So you seem relatively self-aware for a uh, a, a technical type. How, how did you end up with this <laughs> as a as an interest? You know, starting off as an architect and a, a sort of self-proclaimed builder and designer. How did you get this interest in the you know sort of the social and psychological you know side of adventure and building things? Well, I think it came. I think that's been. I think that's kind of the undercurrent of all of those things, right? I think all of my throughout my life, you know, you. I guess you could kind of think of it as, you know, we all go through life doing certain things and living certain ways, and sometimes we often don't look at ourselves. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to self-analyze and say, I and say, you know, I do this because I do this. It's easy to say it, but usually you're wrong, right? Like usually, like your motivations are different than what you say they are oftentimes but it's easy to uh it's easy to look at maybe another person and say like well i see how they live um you know they do this every day they spend their money on this they really enjoy this and this is their hobby and like you can kind of boil them down into a category their core this you know this is this person's core interest and i can tell by the things that they do and so when i kind of like look back on myself you know today and look at all the things that i was doing and how i was doing them you know uh, doing architecture and uh, working in construction and how I related to people and all of these things, I can kind of look back and say that like the undercurrent of all of those things, like the real motivation, the real interest was in was in understanding myself and understanding people better. Interesting. That's that's an interesting journey to take to come to that realization. Now, since then, and maybe this isn't since then. Maybe you can catch us up to date on this. You've done some sure. really interesting and exciting things along the way. What is sort of the most exciting thing that you've done? The most exciting thing I've done. On a micro level, I snuck through a, a police barricade uh, out in the mountains in, in rural Russia to go climb a mountain a few years ago. That was like that was like pretty exciting. That act in itself, not super meaningful, but pretty exciting. But that was on a mission to uh, to climb some mountains, and I've also run a marathon on every continent, which was a big goal of mine for four years that I finished last year. So, what what was the last continent? Antarctica. Yep. There are marathons in Antarctica. <laughs> uh, there are, but I actually didn't. Uh, I actually, well, there's technically, I believe there's two, but I didn't run either of them. I hadn't. I got an opportunity to hop aboard a uh, tourist vessel from Argentina to go for an 11-day cruise around Antarctica. And when I booked the trip through a friend of mine, I mentioned that I would also like to run a marathon while, while I was down there. And they said, well, I'm not sure, really sure how that would work, but we can figure something out. And so what ended up happening was uh, when, the, uh, when the ship was, uh, was parked for a day, I ran uh, 243 laps around the, uh, around the deck in one of the... <laughs> In one of the uh, in one of the bays there in Paradise Cove, sorry, on the tip of north uh, northwest Antarctica, and so that's how I completed my marathon in Antarctica. <laughs> Interesting. I guess I had never thought about running in Antarctica, but I guess that would be a little challenging. Yeah, most people probably don't think about running in Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the kinds of things that you've learned as you've done all of this introspection about your process of learning. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the biggest lesson for me in, you know, in all these things, and I think the, the, the situation you're referring to is my trip to Russia was, was filled with, uh, with new experiences that I, didn't quite know how to, that I didn't quite know how to handle, many cultural differences that were kind of difficult to figure out. And I think you're referring to when I, uh, I had to pretend not to speak English in order to get through uh, security yet again in order to get on an airplane because the guy who was, uh, who was minding the, the security queue wanted a bribe. Uh, in order to let me uh, into the airport, and I didn't have any money to give him, so I had to pretend <laughs> that I didn't speak English so that he would get frustrated and just let me go. But my, I guess the biggest lesson I learned from that, and my, um, not really my theory or philosophy, but just kind of more, you know, the actual science is that the more uh, and the more and varied uh, and perplexing experiences you have, the faster and better your brain gets at solving problems, right? Because uh, the same problems all exist across the entire uh, world, you know, across many different cultures, but different cultures solve them in different ways. And growing up in, in one place um, and seeing the same thing over and over again, you get it in your head that there's, there's one way to solve a particular problem. Uh, but when you go to different parts of the world, you see it being solved in, in many different ways, that at first are kind of confusing and perplexing, but if you actually, you know, look a little bit deeper, you see that there's uh, actually a lot of thought goes into those kinds of things, and then there's quite a bit of reason behind it. And as you kind of collect these experiences, as you collect all of these, you know, confusions throughout your travels, you start to put together a much more comprehensive understanding of the world, I guess, which allows you when you come home and you confront a new problem. Uh, something you haven't experienced before, you're just prepared a lot better to, you, you have a lot bigger database, you know, in your brain to draw from for ways to solve it than you than you did before you left. Do you know other, I, I don't know whether you call it travel hackers or people who uh, do this kind of travel, and have you noticed that their ability to solve problems is different or, or you know, more honed than someone who sits behind a desk all day. Uh, well, it would be my my own bias to think so, but and I do surround myself with uh, with a lot of frequent travelers that I you know that I've just kind of generally find more interesting and yeah, just a little bit more enlightened on you know life, I guess, uh, than you know maybe the typical never left home, never wanted to leave home kind of personality. But I mean, it, it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be my feelings about it even. There's lots of, uh, of research to show, honestly, the way that your brain works is a little bit different depending on which part of the world you're from. And so, you know, maybe there's not, there hasn't been a lot of research yet to say specifically, like, if you go to this place, you will learn how to do this differently, uh, you know, when you come home. But, you know, as a, as a human being, it's pretty intuitive that, as you collect more experiences, you get a more well-rounded, more well-rounded idea uh, and understanding of how, you know, I guess, humanity works. You know, how to deal with people, how to solve difficult problems, and things like that. I like that. That's an interesting perspective, and uh, I have definitely noticed myself that uh, traveling a little bit and getting out of my same visual situation, because I'm very visual. When I see new things, I tend to get new thoughts and new ideas. So I, I would have to resonate with that, I guess. Um, yeah, well, there's lots of there's lots of research to show 
that that you're 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 often at your most creative when you leave your uh, you know comfortable routine environment, right? So like, you know, there's lots of of studies that have shown how people come up with more creative ideas when they go for walks or when they you know when they are forced to be in a different environment than they're normally in. So that's like that's actually pretty well proven. Well, I would like to take a left hand turn here and yeah. ask you a couple of questions as we uh, wrap this up. In an age where you can uh, get the answers you need from Google or from Wikipedia or from YouTube when you need to go solve a problem or go read a blog somewhere, in your opinion, what does that what does it mean to be educated in in this new environment? Yeah, good question. My opinion of what it means to be educated is to is basically knowing how to educate yourself. You know what I'm saying? So like like you said, in a world of Wikipedia and YouTube and Google, everything you could possibly want to know is available at your fingertips. And so the the meaning of an education or the meaning of being educated is really no longer, I, I feel like, about going into a classroom and, and getting a uh, uh, or racking up credits and getting a degree. Those things are all valuable. But really the, the value of an education is learning how to look for and how to interpret, you know, information because even though there's Google and there's Wikipedia and there's YouTube there's a gazillion gigabytes of of data on everything and not all of it is right and not all of it is good and so knowing uh, how to look for information that's you know both accurate and and uh, trustworthy is a really big part of being educated because when all of the you know when all of the information in the world is available to you you have to know how to filter it so the last question we like to uh, end with uh, is what is the purpose of an education? And so from your perspective, you know, with the experiences you've had, um, what what do you think the purpose of an education is? I think the purpose of an education is simply to uh, live better and contribute something. You know, so being you know the purpose of pursuing an education should be to uh, make you happier, enable you to you know bring to life the big ideas that you have in your head and also to understand how to make those things work in harmony with the world around you so that you're not just bettering yourself but you're bettering other people as you as you do what you do so i like that what you said about bringing to life the big ideas you have in your head um i haven't heard that one uh yet but i i really like that oh good (laughs) (laughs) thank you tyler for taking a few minutes to talk to us this afternoon. Before we wrap it up, why don't you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you? Sure. So if you want to find me, I'm really easy to find. All you have to do is go to riskology.co, or you can do a Google search for Tyler Trevorn. Uh, good luck trying to spell my last name, but if you get anywhere <laughs> remotely close, you'll find all kinds of uh, links to my site and interviews I've done and things like that. So uh, I'm not difficult to find. Riskology.co is my uh, is my home base, and everything you could ever want to know about me, you can find right there. All right. Well, we'll link that up in the show notes. Thank you so much, Tyler, for taking a few minutes. Thank you. It's been fun. Have you been enjoying the Tabletop Inventing Podcast? Have comments or questions you'd like us to address? Contact us, and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout-out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. 
let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, how do we awaken the inventor in each of our students? Thank you.